0: His sensitivity to government national security concerns and his sophistication about some of the issues on which Judge Cannon seems particularly unsophisticated can be expected to be pretty high. This is somebody who um, actually knows how national security investigations are conducted. You know, some of the issues that we've been scratching our heads and saying, how is it that she doesn't understand this? I think he is very likely to be pretty sophisticated about.
2: I'm Quinta Juresic, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 19th, 2022. On September 15th, Judge Eileen Cannon of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida issued two key rulings in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. She appointed Judge Raymond Deary of the Eastern District of New York as the special master reviewing the documents, and denied the Justice Department's motion for a partial stay of her previous injunction barring the department from using the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago in its criminal investigation. The next day, Friday, September 16th, the Justice Department appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit for a partial stay of the September 15th ruling. To discuss Cannon's latest ruling, I sat down for a live conversation on Twitter Spaces with Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes and Senior Editors Scott Anderson and Alan Rosenstein. We recorded before the Justice Department filed its appeal, but the conversation is a useful breakdown of Cannon's somewhat off-the-wall orders. Namely, what exactly is this judge doing? And where is the case headed next? It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 19th, Judge Cannon's latest Mar-a-Lago ruling. I want to just start with the basics because it's there's a lot going on here and things can get a little hectic, so I want to review where, where we are. Ben, I want to turn to you. Can you just give us an overview of what Judge Cannon did on Thursday night, that's yesterday evening, um, and situate the ruling in context of the investigation so far?
0: Well, what she did was more or less nothing, which is to say she refused to uh, reconsider her earlier ruling, appointing a special master and enjoining the use of the material seized at Mar-a-Lago pending the review by that special master, both for executive privilege and for attorney-client privilege reasons. Uh, So that's mostly what she did. In addition, she did clarify her ruling using a rather generous uh, definition of the word clarify on the point of the difference between the national security investigation, where her original ruling permits the continued use of the material, and the criminal investigation uh, where the previous ruling forbids the use. Uh, But by and large, she refused. uh, The government had asked her to reconsider that ruling at least as to 100 documents that were classified, and she refused to do that. And uh, so from her point of view, the case, the appointment of the, she went ahead and appointed uh, uh, Judge Deary as the special master, and that goes ahead and he should get to work. Uh, the government has made clear uh, that it means to appeal this ruling. So I think we probably haven't heard the end of that question. But uh, from her point of view, what she did was more or less say full steam ahead. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, save myself. I decline and will go down with this particular ship.
2: And before we go any farther, when you say that she declined the opportunity to to save herself, what was the opportunity that DOJ gave her and that she refused to take?
0: well, so the 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 government believes her whole opinion was wrong, um but it did not ask her to reconsider the whole opinion. It asked her to consider the opinion only with respect to uh, roughly a hundred documents that were classified and therefore in the government's view, and frankly in in mine as well, could not possibly be personal property and also could not possibly be covered by executive privilege, uh, at least not before review by the executive branch. And so they offered her uh, what I think was really a face-saving out, which is Okay, we'll we'll go through this dance with you with a special master of uh, eleven or thirteen thousand documents, but the hundred that we really care about, please exempt from this, and we can resolve it on that basis. And you know, she said no to that, uh, and I think she is very likely to have a a, a rather embarrassing appeal as a result of that that I don't think the quality of her work product can withstand.
2: So I think it's fair to say that we were all pretty underwhelmed by Canon's initial ruling announcing that she would appoint a special master. And Ben, you and I uh, wrote a lawfare piece with executive editor Natalie Orpet that that first ruling was, and I quote, an epic mess.
0: Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I'm not sure the word underwhelmed is quite consistent. <laughs> I, I, I think I was quite overwhelmed by how bad the opinion was
2: all right well so i want to give uh alan and and scott a chance to weigh in on whether they think that epic mess also just uh describes this ruling so alan let me turn to you first did judge cannon redeem herself or no
1: she she did not and all i can say is that i i regret not hopping on that byline uh, of that earlier piece when i when i had the chance I, i would have loved to be able to join uh, to join in the epic mess analysis. Look, I, I, I agree with Ben that this was DOJ offering a, an off-ramp of sorts. And what I find strange about the order is that Judge Cannon did not take it in the sense that she declined to reconsider her earlier ruling, even in part. However, the, um, I want to uh, quote here, the further elaboration, this is on the bottom of page five for those who are following along. The further elaboration that she provided both makes it clear that DOJ actually has a decent amount of flexibility, but also raises a whole nother set of questions. So <clears throat> let, let me suggest a, 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 what, what I mean by that in some more detail. So she confirms that her original order um, enjoins the government only from further use of the content of the seized material for criminal investigative purposes. This includes, for example, presenting it to the grand jury and using the content to conduct witness interviews as part of a criminal investigation. So she is doubling down on that part of it. However, in the next sentence, she suggests that there is some flexibility because she says, the order does not, however, restrict the government from conducting investigations or bringing charges based on anything other than the actual content of the seized materials. From questioning witnesses and obtaining other information about the materials, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this seems like it is trying to give DOJ extra flexibility, but as our colleague David Priest, I think, pointed out earlier uh, today, I think it was on CNN. This actually just shows that Judge Cannon does not actually know how a national security investigations work, because if you go to a witness and you say, you know, can you tell me what happened with respect to these documents and they were stored? And the witness says, which documents? Well, at that point, your questioning is over because, according to Judge Cannon, you can't talk about the contents of the documents with these witnesses. So in that sense, Judge Cannon seems to be trying to give DOJ some flexibility, but that won't really work. But the real flexibility comes, and perhaps this is unintentional, a little later on, uh, uh, on page six, where Judge Cannon says, As plaintiff acknowledges, to the extent that intelligence review becomes truly and necessarily inseparable from criminal investigative efforts concerning the content of the seized material, the September the 5th order does not enjoin the government from proceeding with its security assessments. Now, this is a pretty big loophole because who's gonna decide whether or not an intelligence review is, quote, necessarily inseparable from the uh, criminal investigative efforts? And the answer is the government. Indeed, Judge Cannon admits as such on footnote 5 of page 9, where she says, because the court is not privy to the specific details of the government's investigative efforts, the court has to, you know, expect that the government in general is best suited to assess uh, when it is truly necessary. So she's basically admitting that the government has to decide this anyway. So this does provide a big off-ramp or a big loophole to the original order, but it further reinforces the fact that none of this actually makes sense because she's admitting all, that all along the government was best placed to make these determinations. So I, I get the sense that she is trying to do a bunch of different things at the same time. You know, she is trying to limit the government's ability to do this investigation, but she also realizing that she can't do that, nor should she do that. So she's trying to give the government some out, except not say it explicitly, and is just making a giant hash out of the whole thing. And at some point, all of these spinning plates will just come crashing down to the ground. And I agree with Ben that that's probably going to be when this is heard by the 11th Circuit.
2: Yeah, so let me say one thing before, Scott, before I let you chime in. I will say I'm particularly puzzled by the fact that, as you say, Alan, uh, Judge Cannon seems to, at least as expressed in her order, really not understand the way that criminal and intelligence investigations interact, particularly because before she was on the bench, she was a assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida in the appellate division. And that's actually a, a district that, you know, ha- has worked high-profile cases that involve sensitive national security matters, like, among other things, the Jose Padilla case back in the day. Um, so it's it's not like, you know, she's necessarily coming at this without any any background, although I don't know what particular cases she, she happened to work. Scott, let me turn it over to you. What do you make of this most recent ruling?
3: So I, I mostly agree with what Ben and Alan have said. I really think to understand what the judge is doing here, there is a logic behind it, but it's not a... a strictly legal legal logic as much as it is kind of an institutional logic and to some degree of political, although not necessarily, not necessarily, although possibly partisan logic. I, mean, I really think the judge here is just trying to construe both the law and the facts in a way that allows her to give maximum benefit of doubt to potential legal defenses or legal arguments that former President Trump might raise. This is something that people may object to on the basis of just because he's a former president doesn't mean he gets additional legal protections over other individuals. But on the flip side, also indicting a former president uh, or potentially criminally investigating them certainly raises a variety of serious policy questions. And you can see why judges would subject it to more scrutiny here. She's kind of gone beyond The I think what would normally be there under the contours of the law, by trying to construct this image of these files saying everything seized is one big bucket. It's a big salad of all these different types of documents that raise all these different types of issues. And I don't want to get into this. I can't resolve the status of these documents until we sort them out. And that requires a special master to do it. Justice Department tried to find a way out of this very cleverly, I think, in its last motion for a partial stay by saying Let's just talk about these 100 documents. Forget the rest for now. We don't agree with you, but let's focus on these 100 break them off because these are the ones where clearly like there's no case here. We want to have a concrete argument about the arguments Trump would have regarding just those 100 documents um, where executive privilege claims and other claims are the weakest. And this was her way of avoiding that because doing that would open the door to then having to litigate the status of all these different tranches without this review that former president trump has asked for instead she offers a different olive branch uh and this is what i think alan was describing she basically adopts Really highly deferential posture to the Justice Department in interpreting her prior order, and then narrows it substantially, or at least you know clarifies that it's narrower than some might have initially read it. Basically saying, "Hey, look, there's lots of stuff. This doesn't stop you from doing. And by the way, if there's some confusion between what you have to do for national security reasons and the criminal reason, I trust you to 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 kind of draw that line. I don't know if that's a really plausible way of saying distributing the kind of responsibilities there i imagine the justice department is still going to be a little uh reticent to tread too closely to the line in, in this case particularly such a sensitive case so you don't want the judge they may not be confident the judge isn't going to change her mind and slap back at them and say no in fact you did cross a line here despite all my language about being fairly broad but she said pretty clearly here there's a lot they can do of different chunks of this investigation not a fully conventional security investigation but certainly they can start looking at saying the handling of these documents As a whole, uh, you know, who may have had access to them at Mar-a-Lago without, as as Alan noted, clearly being able to distinguish within them. At some points in her opinion, it's unclear to me whether classification distinctions are foreboden from digging into it. Certainly, they are the content of the documents. It seems like they would be. But she clearly talks about how they can discuss certain things relating to classified documents as part of this permissible investigation. So there is still a lot of confusion here. But a lot of the confusion on the law and on the facts, I think, is her effort to keep everything in one big ambiguous mass precisely so that she is can kind of keep keep everything under the purview of the special master and justify the need to have somebody go in and begin looking at these documents independently. I think the Justice Department is going to have an issue with that. We've already they've already strongly indicated they're going to appeal. I'd be surprised if they don't go forward to some extent. But they also, at a certain point, are as we've already seen, are going to go forward with the special master because they just got to get the ball rolling on this and they may not be able to get out of this full morass with a judge that's so resistant to moving forward on any of the substantive legal issues until they have this review, until they begin the review. So I kind of expect we're going to see an appeal and the special master process continue to proceed side by side. And I actually don't know which one gets resolved
2: first necessarily. So before we go any further, Ben, I know you have thoughts on this uh, criminal versus intelligence aspect.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you're point earlier that she really does not seem to understand the degree of integration of these uh, two different categories of, of investigation is exactly correct and is a bit puzzling because she's, you know, there are some people sort of my age and older who, you know, kind of grew up professionally before the the Faisal wall came down after 9-11, who really think of intelligence and law enforcement as kind of distinct areas where, you know, they don't work together. And, you know, that hasn't been the way the Justice Department works uh, since, you know, 2002, and particularly since uh, the creation of the National Security Division, which, by the way, is running this investigation, in two thousand five six, and um, you know the 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 better way to think about the Justice Department and the FBI in this context is that there are there are kind of these fusion centers where in, information comes in according to lawful process of whatever they're whatever the agency's running the investigation, and then the different components do with it what is lawful for them to do with it, given the way that it came in. Uh, And that makes it really, really hard to say, uh, okay, we're freezing the law enforcement part of this investigation, but not the intelligence assessment part. A lot of agents who are collecting information don't know which part they're working on. And it's a kind of a strange naivete for the judge to, you know, act like there are some these sort of two separate hermetically sealed operations pursuing this, one of which she can put an injunction on and the other of which uh, she can just allow to proceed. So it's, it's a very peculiar aspect of the opinion.
1: Yeah. So I, I want to just zoom out a little bit because I, I do think that the, the problem is not, I mean, there are plenty of problems with what's going on right now, but it's important not to get focused too much on any of the specific details, in part because it's all a bit incoherent, so it's, it's a little bit like trying to squeeze a toothpaste tube, but also because this is all downstream from what I think is the original sin of all of this, which is the appointment of the special master uh, himself now, in this case. And uh, I promise I will stop reading from the opinion, uh, or from uh, Judge Cannon's order uh, after this, but I do think it's worth just like noting this one uh, passage also on the bottom of page 9 of this order. Lastly, the court agrees with the government that the public is best served by even-handed adherence to established principles of civil and criminal procedure, regardless of the personal identity of the parties involved. It is also true, of course, that even-handed procedure does not depend on unquestioning trust in the determinations of the Department of Justice. A little spicy, but I get what she's saying. The problem, though, is that although she may be right, that we should be skeptical when the Department of Justice brings investigations and executes search warrants, even-handed law enforcement requires that we be skeptical in the same way of the Department of Justice, no matter who the defendant is. And ultimately, the problem here is that she has decided, based not on any legal rationale, um, just based on her sense that because the Department of Justice is investigating Trump, a bunch of new rules should apply beyond, frankly, all the additional rules that the Department of Justice has used here. And so I agree with Scott that what is fundamentally happening is that this whole time, Judge Cannon just does not trust the Department of Justice, though, unfortunately, she won't say why she doesn't trust the Department of Justice. She just doesn't trust it. She wants a special master to babysit. She's creating all of this confusion so that everything sort of has to go through the special master, although she doesn't want the responsibility of actually screwing up the Department of Justice investigation. And that's what she's doing. Now, there is a certain coherence there, I guess. Um, but ultimately, what is still undefensible is the idea that because this happens to be about Donald Trump, not just, you know, do we maybe hold the DOJ to a slightly higher standard, which is definitely what it's doing for itself, but that we throw out the entire rule book and invent essentially a completely parallel process of criminal procedure that just does not exist anywhere else and for any other defendant. That is the thing that is most corrosive here. Um, Because I do agree that ultimately, DOJ will be able to get its job done. But my goodness, this looks terrible. So I wanna just respond to that
3: really briefly. Look, on on one level, I sympathize, like being a former president doesn't get you a new bundle of legal rights different than other Americans. I I think that's fundamentally true. I also think we shouldn't be naive to the fact that judges are gonna approach this case differently than if this were not the former president. She said that outright in her opinion, this latest opinion. That's not a secret, though. Like, it inevitably weighs in here. There are ways it can do so validly and invalidly, but because of the sensitivities of this case, because of the political implications, because of the historic nature of it, like, judges. Are going to give Donald Trump a lot more benefit of a doubt than other defendants in that position might be, and will be, and will receive in the future. Quite frankly, and I think as observers, uh, and frankly as advocates in the Justice Department and elsewhere, like it's worth kind of bearing that in mind. Because I don't think it's actually going to be that different on appeal. Now, do I think they're going to uphold this? No, I don't, because I think it's too far out on the law. But I think they're going to feel the need to entertain a lot of these arguments a lot more credibly than if they were made by somebody in a comparable position doesn't have the same political implications. And so, you know, we can say it's objectionable. I think it's objectionable. Certainly the substantive law hinges on that fact. But insofar as we're talking about the discretion, judgment, equitable consideration, other factors that involve a lot of decision making by judges in trial judge or in this weird posture this judge is in situation where there inherently is just a lot of judgment exercise and how you handle different legal matters, particularly at this entry level stage, like they're all going to be in Donald Trump's favor. And I don't like that personally, because I think he's using it to do bad things, and that bothers me. But if you were to say this in a neutral context where an incumbent president is investigating a former president of a different party, I would say I get that. I get that instinct to say, let's give the maximum benefit of a doubt to insulate our process politically. And so, you know, a better balance needs to be struck. This judge is not doing it the right way, but I don't think it's a logic that's going to be alien to a lot of other members of the federal judiciary.
2: So I, I want to uh, piggyback on, on that to ask an incendiary question in, in the hopes of eliciting some interesting responses. A lot of what we're seeing here is a greater skepticism from the judge toward the Justice Department than we typically see. And I've seen some people make that point that she's kind of flipping on its head, the presumption of regularity in a sense now obviously there's i would argue and i think you would all agree something that is perhaps odd about implementing that only in this particular instance and in the kind of scattershot way that canon has done that said it let's say you know i'm a defense lawyer right what why shouldn't it be the case that this is the kind of scrutiny that the justice department should get in every case right are we by by criticizing canon's ruling here are we uh handmaidens of power, to use an old criticism of lawfare?
0: Well, as a person to whom that criticism was directed, and as a sworn handmaiden of power myself, I would say no. So the reason to have a special master is when you search a lawyer's office and you get a lot of stuff that could implicate a lot of different clients' confidences, You want somebody who's not the government to sort that stuff. As a general matter, when we conduct a search warrant, we don't say there's two levels, three levels of review here. One, uh, a judge has to approve the warrant. Two, the Justice Department has to follow the warrant in good faith. You know, three, the defendant, if anyone's charged, can move to suppress stuff. And four, we appoint a special master. That is not the normal rule. And the question, and I don't think anything about this case suggests that we should add that as a normal rule uh, to the normal process by which a judge reviews the matter, authorizes the search, the Justice Department is supposed to act in good faith, and then a defendant can. Move to suppress any material that's improperly seized, so i I actually don't see what the issue is here
1: so so two 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 responses to the question that you pose so first, just as a threshold matter, there's a big difference between having a special master for attorney client privilege, which is relatively straightforward to assess. It's pretty clear what is attorney client privilege. There's a lot of doctrine about that. This is a standard thing that special masters do versus having a special master try to figure out whether something is executive privileged, right? Um, Which is much more of a complicated legal issue. um, And it's something that we have these things called article three judges to figure out in the final analysis. So it's just not even clear why you have a special master to figure uh, that out. Um, Especially in a case like this, where there's a relatively small universe of documents. But more generally, if we had a special master, every time someone wanted some extra oversight over DOJ to uh, make sure that they weren't taking documents that they weren't supposed to, um, the criminal law system would grind to a halt because that's a whole lot of cases. Now, if you think that there's an enormous epidemic of DOJ taking way more documents than they should be, which is theoretically possible, I'm not trying to stand for DOJ here, right? Then you might want to institutionalize special masters and have this whole additional thing of review. Though, of course, at that point, someone's gonna say, well, yeah, but now special masters are just captured by DOJ. So what you really need is a special, special master to review the work of the special master. And then it's just special masters all the way down. The, the problem is at some point you have to accept that there's a certain amount of trade-off between people overseeing the work of the government and the government ever getting anything done. And I have no objection to ratcheting that up. Um, I have no objection to us all being far more skeptical of DOJ. But then we should be a little more skeptical across the board rather than just say um, that in this particular case, for reasons that, again, Judge Cannon isn't even articulating, uh, frankly, we need to sort of, again, invent parts of the rule book um, because we't trust we don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't trust DOJ. Again, and this is, I think, especially notable given how careful this DOJ has been uh, about treating Trump with kid gloves. I just don't think anyone can look at. How DOJ has conducted this investigation um, and think that it is taking shortcuts because it wants to, to nail Trump.
3: I, I don't disagree with that. The only thing I'll add here, though, is that you know, there's a reason Trump's counsel chose this as a step to say to, to push on. And I think they anticipated, and correctly in this case, and then they got very lucky on the judge they drew, that the, the argument that a former president being investigated is going to put a lot of pressure on claims like this to say, like, well, this is just a neutral third party looking at this stuff. Like, why wouldn't, in a case this sensitive, would we want that as a precaution in a variety of different factual patterns, even if it may not be the ordinary case, right? Like, this is the unique case, the sui generis case, uh, that creates an exception to all the usual standards. And Trump's lawyers know that, and they're going to use it to ruthless advantage getting a special master and petitioning for one was the first step in that, but we're going to see that strategy continue moving forward. And you're not, I'm not sure you're always going to win or often going to win by the argument that, well, this would be a disaster if it applies in normal cases, simply because this is such an unusual case.
0: Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
0: Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at DeleteMe. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
2: All right, so let's let's talk about the particular special master at issue here. And I know a, a listener sent this in as a question, so I'm, I'm happy to get to it. I should also say, uh, mm-hmm. listeners, if you do have questions, please put them in the chat or tweet at us, and we'll get to them at the end of the show. Um, so the, the special master whom... Cannon appointed um, is Judge Raymond Deary. He was originally suggested by Trump and the Justice Department said that they were okay with that. And clearly, Judge Cannon is as well. Um, He is a senior federal judge in the US uh, District Court for the Eastern District of New York. What do we know about him? Ben, can you give us the download?
0: Well, so he is a uh, a long-serving district judge in New York. Uh, The most important thing about him is that he is acceptable to both parties. And, uh, you know, I believe he was suggested by the Trump side and the government shrugged and said we could live with that. Uh, he did serve on the FISC, wherein in which role, I believe. And we should uh, say that's,
2: that is that is the FISA court. Can you give a brief overview of that? Yeah, for listeners? The,
0: the, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which is the uh, uh, special court in Washington that hears uh, national security uh, wiretap and surveillance requests. And in that role, he was, ironically, um, one of the three judges, I believe, who approved warrants for surveillance of Carter Page. So why he is nonetheless uh, considered acceptable by the Trump side is a bit of a mystery to me, frankly. Um, That said, he was, um, and so I think his principal uh, virtue uh, is that neither side objected to him, which in a situation like this actually uh, matters for a lot. I think because he is a, um, served on the Fisk, his sensitivity to government national security concerns and his sophistication about some of the issues on which Judge Cannon seems particularly unsophisticated can be expected to be pretty high. This is somebody who um, actually knows how national security investigations are conducted. You know, some of the issues that we've been scratching our heads and saying, how is it that she doesn't understand this? I think he is very likely to be pretty sophisticated about.
2: Yeah, I will uh, also note my own confusion about why uh, Trump suggested Judge Deary, but we we shall see. I I should also mention it is uh, not typical for for sitting judges uh, to serve as special masters because they have day jobs. But Judge Deary is actually uh, he took senior status. And so uh, that is why he is available here, even though he is technically still a judge on that court. So one of the notable things about uh, Cannon's ruling is that she's directing Deary to complete this review by November 30th, which is, I think it's fair to say kind of a long way away, especially when the justice department is so worried about these documents that are so highly classified and what might've happened with them. Um, I want to talk about the prospects for appeal in a little bit, but before that, How much of a wrench does this throw into the works for DOJ, assuming uh, just for the moment that all of Cannon's order stays in place?
1: Well, I, I think it depends, again, on how DOJ interprets the wording in the order. And the problem is, there's just a lot of uncertainty about it. I think that Cannon has both signaled, and I think you can massage the word soup, uh, in a way that gives DOJ a lot of leeway to do its intelligence assessments, and where necessary to bring a criminal investigation along. Uh, along with that, though, I guess one of the disadvantages of the vagueness of Cannon's order is is that she can always then go back to her stern admonition that you know DOJ is meant to act cautiously or, or whatnot as a way of of you know. Punishing DOJ later, so you know, there is this cloud of uncertainty. I mean, again, I, I think I agree with, with everyone else on on this uh, in this conversation that ultimately DOJ is going to be able to do what it needs to do. Um, but certainly, I, I'd be just kind of very uncomfortable if, if I was DOJ having to work under these conditions.
0: Yeah, I was. The the key uh, word that Alan just said is uncomfortable, and if you are DOJ and you are bound by that original word salad supplemented with this word salad dressing, you uh, don't know what you can and can't do. You know you have a little more flexibility than you thought you did two days ago, but you it's really hard to figure out what you are and aren't allowed to do. And given this relatively small volume of material at issue and the fact that only 100 documents are classified, which is, of course, the heart of the case, what you're actually going to do in practice is establish with the special master, assuming it actually goes that far and they don't get a stay, you're going to establish with the special master that you're free to do what you need with those hundred documents and basically put the whole thing on hold until you've resolved with respect to those. That said, look, this is a temporary speed bump unless, of course, Trump is right that they took a whole lot of stuff that they shouldn't have taken, which I don't believe to be the case, uh, unless we find out that there are actually deficiencies in the stuff they seized under the search warrant and that their filter review process was somehow defective. This is a temporary bump in the road and it does not fundamentally change the complexion of the case.
2: All right. So let's talk about what happens next. Um, Again, so we're we're recording this. It's currently uh, 4.37 p.m. Eastern on on Friday. So uh, if you're listening to this as a podcast, uh, DOJ may have already filed its its appeal. But we're anticipating that uh, the Justice Department is going to appeal at least some parts of this ruling to the 11th Circuit. What do we? What approach do we think that they're, they're going to take? What approach do we think that the 11th Circuit might take? If you're DOJ, are you feeling pretty good about the prospect of this being reversed on appeal? Scott, let me start with you.
3: Yeah, you know, DOJ has a decision here. Either they can go forward with a broader challenge to the appointment of the special master, a lot of the other elements of its argument that applies to the broad swath of documents, and saying, we're gonna attack every aspect of this that we don't like, or they can stay focused on the 100 classified documents, uh, on that much narrower tranche that they tried to break off with their motion for a partial stay, say, we don't necessarily agree with the rest of this, You know, we don't like it, we don't like what's happening, but really the part we're intent on appealing, just like we did with our partial stay, was this specific tranche of high value documents. I kind of suspect, even though there are lots of legal problems with what the broader arguments about what Judge Cannon has done here, that they're going to stay focused on that narrower trance of documents for the simple reason that it seems like those are what's key to their investigation. They have by far the strongest legal arguments there. They're most institutionally sensitive about the treatment and handling and ownership of classified documents for very good reasons, in my view. And, you know, I, I think the 11th Circuit, you know, you're not guaranteed a friendly panel on the 11th Circuit necessarily, um, depending on what factors you think go into the judge's uh, judges' consideration in this case, given the political sensitivities. So I think there's good reason to think that they may take a more conservative approach and say, hey, let's take the argument where we have the strongest case on those are this classified documents. There are other issues we're going to reserve our complaints about that, make clear we're not happy about it, make clear that this isn't something that should be repeated by other judges or other courts. But we're not going to pursue the appeal squarely at this point. That's it. I don't know. I could see arguments on the other side as well. Maybe Ben and Alan will, will make those.
0: Well, I will just say that I, I, I want to split the baby between the argument that Scott just made and the argument that nobody has made. I basically agree with Scott with the caveat that in many ways, the Justice Department's strongest argument is jurisdictional argument. That Judge Cannon has no authority to hear this case at all, and if she has no authority to hear the case at all, she has no authority to uh, appoint a special master in it. And they very carefully preserved uh, that issue. And I wouldn't be surprised if they, if that's a central issue that would go would sweep a bit more broadly than Scott's point, if they were to win on it. A couple of other things there are. There are two ineluctable government equities here. Um, One is that that they will not negotiate about or that that they have to appeal. So, one is the idea that a special master can review executive privilege material or that anybody has the right to deny, to, to demand an outside review of executive privilege material there's just no way that the government is not going to appeal that uh the second is the issue with respect to the hundred specific documents that that how can donald trump have a possessory interest in our ownership interest in classified documents It it actually is analytically nonsensical the government doesn't you know Think about the last time the government came to your house, took your personal documents and put classified markings on them. It's literally something. You mean that that
2: doesn't happen to you all the time? Exactly.
0: It's literally something that doesn't happen. And I, um, I think those are the two ineluctable government interests here that, you know, the government's position will be, has been, and will continue to be anything stamped top secret is by definition not personal property. It is the government's property. And if you're housing it at your house, it's because you stole it, not because you're entitled to have personal classified material. And the, the, the second point is that it is analytically nonsensical for the, to demand review from outside the executive branch of claims of executive privilege from review within the executive branch, but that's sort of a double non sequitur. And so I agree with Scott that the government could make the tactical decision not to go nuclear with this and uh, really focus on those 100 documents, but I also think they have some, some pretty substantial equities Uh, that sweep a little bit further than the motion to reconsider that, as I say, they offer Judge Cannon as a kind of face-saving solution.
3: I I don't disagree with Ben on those issues and the Justice Department's important, uh, you know, invested interest in those issues. The only thing I would note here, I think it's part of the strategic calculus, is that this isn't their last bite of the apple on fighting these issues out substantively. This is really about, you know, whether the special master is going to have to do its work before we reach these issues A lot of these other issues are going to come out as as part of the special master process and how the special master chooses to go about its duties and approaches these documents. And that's why I think Justice Department may feel like we're not going to give up on these arguments. We're going to save them for that next stage in the process and focus on the classified documents that are most key to our case.
2: All right. Uh, We're going to go to listener questions. And if you have a question, please put your question in the chat or tweet at us. Um, so first, is a question from Alan Glenn, who asks, so does this mean that from now on, before an intelligence agency marks a document as classified, they have to have a federal judge looking over their shoulder? Alan, I'll throw that to you.
1: I, I mean, I, I, I don't think so. Uh, I, certainly, I, I certainly hope not. Um, I mean, this debate is, or this dispute is limited to these specific, uh, specific documents, and unless something... Deeply, deeply crazy happens on appeal. I, I don't think that'll change uh, how the executive branch you know, classifies information.
2: All right. Um, next, Alan, I'm, I'm going to throw another one to you. There's a question from uh, Alark who asks, what are the checks and balances in place for assessing and responding to behavior and competence at the level of a district judge?
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I, I will leave it to Ben to, to sing the I'm a district judge and I'm smarter than you song. Um, but there are really, there are really three the first and the most obvious, and the one that's used all the time, is reversal on appeal. And that's obviously what we've been talking about, and that's hopefully what will happen in this case. And district judges get reversed all the time. And again, that doesn't mean that they were wrong or incompetent, right? You know, sometimes the appellate court is wrong, and sometimes these are just hard questions. But that's the first line of defense, as it were, for district judges who are going a bit rogue. Uh, the second line of defense, and this is very extreme, is uh, impeachment. Article Three judges are, by the Constitution, given uh, life, tenure, and salary protection. The whole point is to give them quite a bit of leeway. Uh, but plenty of federal judges have been impeached and removed in American history. Now, it's very important to appreciate uh, or recognize that uh, this has only ever been because of criminality, basically. Uh, in 1804, <clears throat> Congress impeached but failed to remove uh, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase, um, and they impeached him uh, over, basically, they disagreed with his uh, some of his rulings. Public drunkenness, fa- man. Yeah, well, yeah, but mostly because they disagreed with his rulings. Um, and the failure to remove Justice Chase set a really, really strong norm, basically, that uh, when you impeach and remove judges, you only do so uh, because they've, they've basically broken, broken the law or they've acted corruptly. Um, so I think it's inconceivable, and I think it's actually, a, it would be a bad thing um, if, you know, judges were impeached and removed because people believed them to be wrong or even believed them to be sort of. Uh, partisan. Now, this would, of course, change if a judge was found to be literally working in cahoots with a party. That would be just an obvious ethics violation, if not a downright criminal criminal violation that has occurred from time to time. Uh, So there is the impeachment and removal uh, provision. And then the third line of defense, and this is informal, but actually really important, is what we might call peer reputation and peer sanction. Judges, like all of us, care enormously what the rest of us think about us, and in particular, our peers. And judges who tend to be, you know, type A law students who always wanted to sell and get gold stars care a lot about what other judges uh, think. And so, you know, judges talk to each other. They talk about each other and judges develop reputations. Um, And so one might hope that that has a disciplining function. Now, one of the concerns about the increasing polarization, not just of American politics, but therefore also the federal judiciary is that you're losing some of that social reputational sanction, because as judges increasingly um, kind of go to their own extreme ideological corners and kind of only talk to their own like-minded uh, judges, you lose some of that ability. Um, but there is there are strong background professionals and norms uh, that do a lot of the day-to-day um, constraining of judges and making sure that they, that they don't go over their skis too much.
0: Yeah, I will just add on this. This is a very young judge. I don't mean young in age. I mean young in years of service as a judge. I would not want to impute partisan motivation to her or to you know any other federal district judge without a lot of evidence of it but this is a situation this is precisely the situation in which Allen's first remedy which is the humiliatingly embarrassing reversal by a federal court of appeals with a curt cert denial from the supreme court is exactly the right remedy. She has caused significant inconvenience to the Justice Department. And uh, you know, this is the thing for this is going to be in her obituary. Uh, when she dies many years from now, this is one of the things that will be remembered uh, about her. And this is you know, a uh, where that third category, professional reputation, and standards of professionalism and that first category kind of merge with one another. And I, I, I think you shouldn't over underestimate the, degree, the power of those two things when they have happened together.
2: Next, we have a question from Kate, who asks, on what basis does the court assert any authority in determining classification? And how did her ruling frame it? I think this does get to something important, which is, like, to what extent does this ruling raise separation of powers questions?
0: So I can I can take an initial stab at this. There is, uh, as a general matter, I think it is fair to say that I have never seen an opinion in which a court uh, showed less deference to the executive branch on a matter of classification. Uh, Normally, those decisions are Ultimately reviewable, but reviewable with an extreme deference to the executive branch. And here she says, "Yeah, I know they were stamped classified, but seriously, I don't. You know, that's that's the beginning of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. That uh, sounds more like a ACLU lawyer than a uh, than a former AUSA. I'd be curious for Scott's thoughts
3: on it, though. Yeah, I mean, you know." I- I don't think that actually it's not clear to me the special master will be assessing whether the document is classified. I mean, there's different ways that they can approach it. And some of this will boil down to how the special master evaluates their role. And then what Judge Cannon allows. Like the question here isn't really like whether a document uh, has gone through the executive branch procedure for classification. The question is, okay, we know this was a classified document. These are classified documents if they have classification markings. I don't think anyone's disputing that at least it was classified. President Trump has suggested that he came in and declassified these things. Now, it's worth noting he actually hasn't made much argument or presented any evidence to that effect in these proceedings so far. And I'm curious how the special master is going to you know, possibly take that argument seriously until the president does so. We know on the Hugh Hewitt radio show this week, former President Trump said, oh, I did it all verbally and Cash Patel is my witness. That's not super compelling, and far below the level of evidence other courts have required in dealing with comparable cases. Uh, and that Trump's own White House, his own chief of staff Mark Meadows, suggested it should be required. He said, "No, we would have gone through usual declassification procedure if we had declassified anything." And in fact, Trump, the day before he left office, was declassifying things through the regular procedure. So it's hard to see any judge being credibly swayed by that. I think even these judges, although although who knows exactly, or even Judge Kent, I'm, I, won't, I won't say anything about judge who's, as far as I know very reasonable about this. But, you know, how, how when does that decision get made in the special master process? Is the special master going to come up with an assessment of his own and provide a recommendation? Uh, is he going to apply his own standard and that becomes the subject of kind of review and further litigation? That's unclear to me. Um, and I think it really is exemplary, again, of Judge Cannon simply trying to pass the buck and kick the can down the road on deciding all of these hard questions by bringing in and draining the special master request. They don't go away once the special master looks at this. Either somebody else is going to have to make decision for the judge or Judge Cannon's going to have to rule on these substantive issues. And that's ultimately, there's, there's no avoiding that. And it'll come down to that question. As, does Has President Trump provided any evidence that's compelling that he could have or did declassify these things? And I'd have written for Lawfare in a piece a couple weeks ago. I think the case of that is is almost nil.
0: I just want to clarify very briefly. I was not throwing shade at the ACLU before, uh, since both Alan and Quinta seem to have misinterpreted uh, what I said. I want to clarify it. The uh, ACLU has traditionally argued for less deference by federal district judges and uh, appellate courts. To government assertions of classification. So I was uh, simply pointing out that, that the substantive position that she took without briefing actually sounds a lot like the degree of deference that civil libertarians have asked courts to apply to government classification decisions.
2: So next, I'm going to go to a question from AG, who asks... How can a special master assess if a document is classified? Does he just say this one is and this one isn't? How does it work? Alan, let me toss that to you.
1: Well, I I mean, it it depends on what you mean by assessing whether it's classified. Um, If the question is, did the document have a classified marking on it, then I guess the special master can just look at it. Of course, in that case, it's not clear why we would need a special master uh, for that. It's not that many documents and it seems pretty obvious. If the question is, do the documents contain the sort of information that ought to be classified, I guess the special master could opine on that. But as Ben said, um, these are decisions that are given enormous deference to the uh, executive branch in part because the classification system uh, is entirely a a product of uh, executive orders. And then finally, if the question is, well, are these documents classified because Trump verbally declassified everything according to Kash Patel. Well, the issue there is fundamentally not a factual one about whether Trump said some words, though there are factual disputes about that, sure. It's a legal question about whether or not that counts. And again, why you need a special master to decide that question when you have a sitting Article Three judge overseeing the case is also not entirely clear. So if, if Judge Cannon, as she writes in her order, just doesn't trust DOJ's representation that all of these documents are classified, or at the very least with respect to these 100 documents, she can just look at them herself. She doesn't need a special master to help her with that.
2: Yeah, and I also think it's important to note that the the Justice Department's original filings, the the warrant and everything is framed as looking at documents with classification markings rather than classified documents, which I think is uh, important for precisely this reason that that was what the warrant allowed them to seize. It kind of gets around that question, although Trump has been framing that as as crucially significant. Uh, Shannon asks, why did the DOJ go along with Trump's changing the venue for the special master request? So I think this is referring to the fact that uh, this is all being heard before Judge Cannon, as opposed to uh, Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhart, who originally approved the warrant.
3: You know, I, I will be honest with you. I, I'm not exactly 100% sure. I'm not sure DOJ did go along with it. Uh, I, I think this was a vision of this court's jurisdiction, which, as we noted previously, is debatable. And so, uh, you know, it may be subject to appeal as to whether Judge Cannon can do this. Judge Cannon determined that she could. Obviously, she's been proceeding a lot the time. DOJ, I guess, kind of lost that argument, which is part of the arguments against appointing a special master. Then the question is just, you know, is this something that can be sustained under the standard that she's applying, and that's going to be subject to appeal? So, so it's not that so much DOJ kind of like signed off on any of this. I think they're actively contesting it. They just haven't won at the current level, at which it's been brought.
2: All right. I think we have time to sneak one more question in. Matt asks, what happens if Judge Deary comes across materials that relate to himself for the Carter Page decision in his review? Are there any concerns about it potentially influencing his review? May- maybe this is the point where we get to Alan's uh, special masters all the way down scenario.
0: Yeah, I think, I think we can say uh, the government knows the contents of these documents. And if it had any concerns on that score, we can reasonably expect that it would have flagged them.
1: I, I will also say, you know, Ben is absolutely right. But at the end of the day, the role of the special master is simply to serve as a fact-finding assistant to the judge. The judge, Judge Cannon here, must ultimately make the final determination. So if something weird comes up, Judge Cannon has to decide. She cannot avoid responsibility. And I think that is an important feature that we should keep in mind.
2: All right. Thanks to Ben, Scott, and Alan, and to Claudia Swain for fearlessly uh, managing the Twitter spaces and collecting uh, listener questions. And thanks to you all. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. But you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. This podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell. And your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.